Hi, everybody. I'm Meredith Atwood. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm very, very excited about today's guest. Jen Hatmaker joined us live on Zoom. It was so, so, so much fun. Oh, my goodness. So much gratitude to her for taking an hour of her day to speak to my audience and to commiserate with me. And it it was just so, so fantastic. We talk about her new book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, and what all of those components mean in a world where women are told to fit into certain specifications and that our containers should be a certain size. I love that word, containers, (laughs) for our bodies. Jen is as wonderful, authentic, beautiful, and free and fierce and full of fire as you might imagine. I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Jen and share it with all of your people because I think everything she says is so, so valuable right now, especially if we're raising kids and trying to teach the girls in our lives how to be exactly that, fierce, free, and full of fire. Enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. All right, we're going to give everyone a few minutes to join. The beautiful Jen Hatmaker is here. Y'all, I'm a little bit excited. Cheers. Yep. There's the coffee mugs. I knew they were in there. <laughs> Mine is like the size of my head. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Just save yourself a trip to the kitchen. Right. But I don't like cold coffee. I don't like when it gets cold and then it's just like this whole thing. My coffee is 100% always cold because <laughs> I pour it with the greatest of intentions and then I hit a task. And then 15 <laughs> minutes later, I remember my coffee. I heated this exact cup up three times today. So. That so you is know what how, I finally did? What'd you I finally do? broke down and got a Yeti. Mm. And that sucker keeps coffee hot for two hours. Oh, this is an interesting tactic. I, of course, have a Yeti. I live in Texas for crying out loud. <laughs> but I use it for like all my like cold drinks. Yeah. And so I hadn't thought about using my Yeti. For, is it like a Yeti coffee? It's a mug? Yeti coffee. It's the size of my head. And I, like this. I pour the, so this is, <laughs> here's the perfect routine. So I take okay. my Yeti and I pour, I use coconut milk and I pour my yeah. coconut milk in it first so it can cool the inside of the Yeti because otherwise mm. you will have flame and hot coffee you can't drink. Mm. So I cool my Yeti. Con- counterintuitively <laughs> and then Just I put coffee really in it, and it's perfect super temp. strategic but it uh, yeah it works I'm telling you you didn't know you'd learn something today Jen did you <laughs> I mean the one thing that'll get me out of bed in the morning is to get on a zoom with a whole bunch of women and talk about our coffee strategies right. that works for me um and so I appreciate you like enriching my mind Today. This is real work. This is real. Yeah, purpose. it is. It sure is. It's leadership. 
That's right. Yeah. We're doing it one one coffee cup yeah. at a time. All right, friend. We have about 50 people on. So thank you again, okay. everyone. This is Jen Hatmaker. Welcome. You know that. That's why you are here. You're not here to hear me, um, but you're probably here for some playful banter, which I feel like we can deliver <laughs> this morning. Same. So I want to, I read your book yesterday. I read the yeah. whole thing. You did? I did. One, because wow. it's part of the job. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but also because it's very excellent. So thank you. Well done. Well done. Thank um, you. I keep on mixing up the order. Fierce, free. I want to say free, uh-huh. fierce, fierce uh-huh. free, and full of fire. Beautiful. Yep. Book. yep. I wanted book. to title it something that was both hard to remember and say. And I feel like I nailed it. <laughs> you yeah. did great. But yeah. it's usually the subtitle that gets people, I've noticed. And you did it uh-huh. right in the title, and that's just ballsy. So. Uh-huh. Well done. It's it's so memorable though. I mean, fierce, free, full of fire. I mean, those are amazing things. So one of the things I love that you said, and this was, let's start with this. This was talking about your sixth grade teacher. I was never Mm. mean or bad. I was just a lot. Her message was she doesn't like who I am. And this was so major that you're talking about it 32 years later. Hmm. So let's start there, those early impressions. And and you Mm -hmm. also say it's often the women. Hmm. So um, uh, I open fierce with this story um, about my sixth grade teacher and I mean, do you guys remember sixth grade? It's literally the worst year to be alive in the span of a human life. And everything is weird and you're not comfortable in your own skin and your body is changing. I mean, it's such an insecure time to be alive. And I was just testing it out. Like, who am I? Like, what is my deal? How how am I made? What is my real personality? Um, how do I show up in a room? Like, what what am I, who's, who's Jen? And I was just sort of working that out. And, um, in a genuine way, not ever bad. Oh no, I craved approval way too much for that. I was a good, 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 good girl. That was my whole life's work is to be the best good girl I could ever be. But it was just, my personality was just trying out the waters because, you know, a lot of us, I mean, at least I was, I, I, I knew pretty early on what sort of packaging girls were supposed to fill. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew How did what you know that you just felt it like, everywhere, every message, everywhere. every classroom that is run the way that I, the things that I heard in church, um, the women and girls that I would look around and I'd be like, Oh, I see what kind of girl gets rewarded and what kind of girl gets punished, right? I see what she's supposed to act like. I see what she's supposed to say. I definitely see what she's supposed to look like. I, I knew mm-hmm. that before I got out of first grade. Um, and so I had received all those messages in the air, just like all of us, um, that this is how much space girls are allowed to take up. But yeah. I found that that did not work for me, that that felt like a cage and that felt like a constraint on me. And I had bigger ideas than that. And I had bigger thoughts than that. And I had bigger opinions than that. And, and so I was testing those out, like trying on myself and my teacher, Mrs. Anderson, who never liked me, didn't like most of us girls, but she went to my friends and said, I don't even know why you are friends with her, with Jen. She's so domineering. 
And my wow. friends, of course, came and tattled that to me immediately, like sixth grade right. girls do. You can't trust sixth grade girls. <laughs> that was our first mistake. Right. Um, and, you know, of course, my parents intervened. Look, my dad, you guys, no, you, want, you want Larry King, my dad, on your side, okay? He is your guy. But um, I just never forgot it because the message was like, oh, I am too much. I knew it. I knew it. I, I should just try harder to fit the template. Like I just need to squeeze into the form um, or I'm going to be punished for it. And we all get that message. And then we just grow up and we still get that message as women. And so I'm just determined. I am determined to dismantle that structure. Absolutely determined um, that women have permission. They are allowed to show up on this earth exactly how they are. And that does not mean every one of us is the loudest trumpet in the band. It doesn't mean everybody wants to fill a bigger container. Um, some of us don't want the big container. We want the container that's just right for us. And it's interesting because sometimes that girl gets a different message. You should be more, right? right. You're not enough. You're not taking up enough space. You're, you're not trying hard enough. You're not, your ambitions aren't large enough or whatever. That's just as bad. And so whether we are being told to be less or to be more, I call bullcrap on the whole game. Um, that we are designed to flourish on this earth in a certain way. And we have permission to live exactly into that identity. Yes. Yes. One of the things you say is that the message that women are getting or young girls is that we're too much, we're too mediocre and we're too small. It's three conflicting messages. And that's that's what you just said. I mean, yeah, but I was the loudest trumpet in the band. (laughs) Apparently I was too. Yeah. Once I finally found that voice. Right. Well, you know what? In fifth grade, um, I brought home the pamphlet that said, we, we're joining band. And my mom was like, why don't you play the clarinet? Uh-huh. And I told her, I said, well, my music teacher said I had a trumpet personality. Oh, <laughs> and my mom was like, oh, oh really? So oh. I played the trumpet all the way through. Of course she did. Of course I did. She was right. She was right. So speaking of trumpets, let's talk quickly about the Enneagram because this, I saw you mentioned it in your book and I actually heard you on the podcast with Ian Morgan Cron and I thought, oh my gosh, I want to talk about this because this is a great opportunity to let people know what it is. And so I feel like you should have to come into a meeting or a community gathering with your Enneagram number on you. A hundred percent. Like uh, everybody who's with this, like, just yeah. do this if you know what the Enneagram is. Like, is that? Okay. Okay. So for those so of you who aren't sure, it's like this, it's a personality assessment. And that's a very reduced phrase, but it's essentially a personality assessment that's been around a really, 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 really long time. It's actually ancient. It was like um, uh, passed only orally for generations and centuries, actually. But um, in in this century or whatever, I, I'm not a calendar scientist. Um, like <laughs> calendar in the last, yeah, in the last fifty years, it has found <laughs> its way like into like communal discourse and into really instructive space for normal people. So it is incredibly useful. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of those personality bits and yeah. they all have something to tell us. The reason I, I'm, by the way, I'm writing about the Enneagram and Fierce is because it is useful to really sort out who am I and how I'm meant to thrive. That matters. Like we've got to sort that out before we add everything on top of it. Like if, if that piece is broken, if we have no idea who we are, 
or how we flourish, then everything we layer on top of it is like on sinking sand. All of our relationships and our ambitions or whatever, because it's, it's on a faulty foundation. And so that's like our first work is figuring that part out. And then we add everything to it. Um, and so this tool is incredible. It's, it's nine types and um, it's so hard to describe. So I'll just essentially say that when I took the Enneagram test for the first time and got my results and read what it looks like, I am a three, read what it looks like when a three is healthy, when a three is unhealthy, that was my real mirror. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, these people have been spying on me. Like that is exactly <laughs> how I disintegrate. Um, and then what it looks like a three in relationships. It's just, I, I have never, ever felt so understood or seen in my life. And it shed a lot of clarity on why I do what I do and all the kind of pain points in my life. Um, all of a sudden became really kind of clear to me. Yeah. Yeah. You're an eight, same, right? I'm an eight, yeah. which um, anyone that knows the Enneagram is like, they all sharply um, suck in their breath now, but they all probably knew it anyway. Um, but when I found the Enneagram about two years ago, the thing that really stuck out to me was like the basic fears, um, mm, yeah. you know, and, and what mine was is I have a fear of being controlled. And then I thought, oh, where does that come from? And the thing about the Enneagram is it it's not like telling you who you're going to be for life. It's not like instructive, right. like you're stuck in this hole. But it's, yeah. it tells you where you got some of your traits from and some of your habits. And for, yeah. for me, it, I traced it back to childhood. Sure. <laughs> and I started to learn about some of the stuff in my childhood that I had not dealt with. And I mean, mm. it literally opened up the world for me because knowing that I'm an eight um, and, and knowing that I go to a five, which is like mm-hmm. secretive, Heidi, liar, yeah. cheater type personality, or a two in health and I'm a helper and I'm generous and, and mm-hmm. doing things like this. And you, know, I love the world. It's so powerful. So I posted the link in the chat for anyone who does not know your Enneagram number, because you want to go to the Enneagram Institute. There's a lot of tests mm-hmm. out there, but do the actual ready. It's, yeah. it's $12 and it's worth yeah. it. Yes. True. Ready. I'm typing that too. Yeah. But totally interesting. Three was my second. Jen, uh, so. Yeah. You know, a three and an eight have a lot of compatibility. Um, they're both really powerful personalities. Um, and I don't know if I can't remember if Ian and I talked about this on the podcast you referenced, but Ian actually suggested, and he's an Enneagram master. He suggested to me and the first time we ever talked about the Enneagram, he said, I wonder if you have misdiagnosed yourself. I wonder if you're an eight. Um, mm. And I'd like to suggest you explore that a little bit. And I did. And I, I wasn't. Um, uh, primarily because I, I don't, dis- I don't disintegrate that way. Um, oh, okay. I definitely disintegrate like a three. Everybody holds your, let me just look and do it for just a second. Like what number are you? Those of you who know. Yeah. Or t- oh, I guess you can do it on your hand. Let's uh-huh. see. We got sixes, twos, fives, uh-huh. eights. Oh, there's an eight. Uh-huh. Cynthia, we should be friends. Margaret, uh-huh. nine. There's a lot of threes in here. A lot of threes. Three, um, women who are threes and eights are often, they struggle sometimes because their personalities show up in a powerful way. Um, And that's not always sanctioned behavior for women. Men get to be powerful, right? Right. Men get to have big ideas and big thoughts and big opinions and big ambitions um, because a three has some ambition. Um, And that is generally frowned upon by women. We're told we are um, too much, you know, we are a lot, as Miss um, Anderson said, 
Um, and <laughs> we are, and that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a lot. It's wonderful to be a lot in this world. This world needs a lot. Um, this world needs big feelings. This world needs big ideas. This world needs big ambition. And so one thing I love about the Enneagram is that every number is wonderful. There is something so precious about every single type of human person and we need it all. Like we need, we need one through nine in every culture and every community. Um, and there's always so much to be like adored. Mm -hmm. I always, I wanted to be a seven. Like when I read the type, I'm a seven wing. Is anybody a seven? I didn't know. I'm actually an equal seven, eight with a second three. Do we have any sevens? Uh, No, No, the sevens are out there having fun right now. They're like hiking. They're not bettering their mind with a podcast. They're out having a party. Oh, I wanted to be a happy, clappy seven. I'm definitely not. But (laughs) I like the description. I'm a two wing. Two wing. Oh, that (laughs) makes sense. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's so helpful, I think, about the Enneagram, for those of you who don't know about it, is how to communicate with other people. Once you know someone else's number, you can speak their language because I'm an eight. So I'm like really loud in your face. Tell me the truth at all costs. And Mm -hmm. that is annoying to people. It's especially hard for sixes and Mm -hmm. and ones to communicate with me. So when Mm -hmm. I have clients now, I, I get their Enneagram number because I know that if I have a fellow eight that yeah. we can just like go to battle and then if I yeah. have a, a two who's used to to helping everyone and they want to make yeah. me proud like I gotta you know back off a little so it's a yeah. wonderful communication tool yeah a hundred percent um it really served our marriage um mm-hmm. because I'm married to a two um and so you know there's this whole body of work around the Enneagram that essentially says what does it look like when a three marries a two? Like, this is maybe what your conflict sounds like. Spot on. Um, This (laughs) is probably where you rub. This is probably how you're awesome together. Um, When a seven marries a one, this is maybe what it looks like. It's so precise that it's spooky. Like it's literally spooky, but it really did help me learn my husband's language because we process differently. We process everything differently. Pain, um, challenge, all of it. And so um, it, giving me a little insight into what's under the behaviors, because the Enneagram is not behavior oriented, it's motive oriented. Like, like mm. you said, what's the fear? What's the main motive? What's under the thing? Because sometimes our behaviors can be all over the map, depending on where we are on the healthy to unhealthy scale. Um, and so the motive is really, but that was a tool in my hands and in, in our marriage for sure. Yeah, motive. That's that's a good. I was mm-hmm. I was looking for that word somewhere in my head, and it was nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing too is how great it is for raising children. Um, yeah, to understand that. So my husband is. I think we've boiled it down to a three. He tested <laughs> equally across three, seven, and eight, which I did, which is kind of spooky. Uh, and then we definitely yes. have an eight, seven daughter, and my son's a four. <laughs> Yeah. Of course he's a four. He has huh. to be like, yeah. he has no choice, but, <laughs> but to show up as, you know, in the world as a four, but it allows yeah. us to know how to, to totally. communicate with him in a household of three really strong personalities that totally. he doesn't get Bless lost. Him. 
Bless him. <laughs> Bless him. I know. Let's talk a little bit about body image. This okay. is a whole chapter in your book. It's a chapter in my book. It's a chapter in every yep. woman's head all day long. Sure um, I loved your interview that you had on your podcast with Liz Gilbert, where you yeah. mentioned that Instagram post that she had written. Yeah. Um, can you summarize that? And, and then mm. let's talk a little bit about body image. Totally. Um, gosh, I could probably just read it to you. Um, let me just read it to you because it's so lovely and I don't want to, I don't want to get it wrong because she is such a wordsmith. Um, oh, well, I thought I knew. Oh, here it is. Oh, good. Look what I found. I happen to be. look at that book. What? Right next to me. (laughs) What do you know? Turns in the Kindle cloud reader, so I don't have it to show up. (laughs) This is something that Liz Gilbert wrote on Twitter a couple of years ago. Um, so it wasn't even in a book. I just happened to be like mindlessly scrolling and I saw this and it, it pierced me so quickly. Like I screenshot it. I emailed it to myself. I emailed it to my editor. I'm like, let's not ever lose this because I want to remember what she wrote. And she said, I've lost the dark and particularly female talent for self-criticism and for tearing myself down. It feels like sacrilege. My mouth can't force the hateful words and I can't bear it anymore to hear another woman demean, degrade, or diminish herself. It shocks my senses and hurts my heart. To witness a woman denying that she is beautiful is like watching someone set fire to an art museum. It's like watching an angel drink gasoline. It's like watching a phoenix rip off its wings. And that sense of like self-love was so jarring to my senses because I treated my body the exact opposite. Hater. absolutely hate it. Like despise it, talk ugly about it, wish it away, write terrible things about it, treat it with such contempt, deny it. Um, and so to hear somebody just talk like that with such self-compassion, with such love, I just, I'm like, wait, wait, this is the opposite of the way that I have been programmed and really all of us like this one is going to take mega work. Um, talk about the air we breathe. We all know this. We have, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt what pretty means and what pretty looks like. And oh, but uh, I love broke- your, your examples in your yeah. book about how over the centuries, like Italian Renaissance, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I fit in there. And then it's like uh, the totally. 90s heroin wave. Oh, I don't fit in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wandering mistress. It's right. what, what, we, what we know is what pretty looks like right now and right, right here. That's different all around. So it's not even fair. It's a rigged game. Um, So what really set me free on this or began the, let me be more truthful. What began to set me free in this conversation is when I had Dr. Hillary McBride on my podcast. And this was about a year and a half ago. And this is her main work. Her main work is women in their bodies. And she is, and she's such a gentle, dear thing. And she said something to me that just like rattled me. She said, you know, cause I was just telling her my terrible relationship with my body. I just consider it an unfortunate container carrying my brain around. Right. Yeah. And she said, I wonder if you could just start by thinking through a paradigm shift. She says, you know, women tend to call our bodies an it. 
It's just an it. It's separate from who we are. Um, it's just like this flesh that we can't get away from. Um, it has nothing to do with our hearts and souls and the work of our hands. And she's like, none of that is true. And she said, what if we began to call our bodies a her or a she? And we began to train our minds to consider our bodies as an integral part of who we are. That if you are being fair and truthful, you'll have to admit that your body is responsible for every beautiful, marvelous experience you have ever had. Every good thing you heard or said or smelled or touched or felt, she's carried you everywhere. She is your, she is a hundred percent on your side. And she protects you and she warns you and she keeps you safe and she nurtures your people. And it just like, who talks like that? You know, who thinks (laughs) like that? And so I started the practice of being kind to myself, of saying things to my body, like, you just, you were good to us today. Like you carried us through a really hard conversation today. Um, You gave me a warning signal um, inside an environment where I was not safe. You let me know. Um, you made a beautiful dinner. You nurtured the kids today. Like you had sex with your husband today. You just, you did a good job living another connected day on this earth. And I just started talking like that, even though it's weird at first. And I've come to discover that it is possible to reverse the hatred that we have towards our bodies and that we can let our bodies be who they are and and be thankful for them and live gratefully inside of our bodies. And so um, I'll be honest and say that out of all 12 chapters, this is the one that I still have the most work to do on. This is sure. the one where I still feel the most fragile and the least evolved, but I'm on the path. I'm on the path. I'm working towards it. I see where I want to go. And I think just after 45 years of talking to my body in such hateful ways, it's just going to take a minute. Um, to right. figure out how to reverse that impulse. Yes. I mean, and, and the thing is, we want to either change our bodies overnight or when we decide, hey, I'm going to try and love it. We want to learn to love it overnight. And it's a process. Yeah. It's a process. It and is. one of the examples I have was I realized for almost a decade, I only put lotion on my legs and my forearms because I didn't want to touch anything else. I didn't want to touch my thighs, my belly, my boobs, hmm. my upper arms. I did not even want to touch wow. it. I didn't lotion wow. it. some dry skin, you know? So when I realized I'm going to lotion mm-hmm. every part of my body, that was a start to say, okay, mm-hmm. you, you, you thirsty belly, <laughs> you deserve yeah. some love. And even now, if I feel like I'm off my eating and I feel gross or mm-hmm. I tend to avoid my belly and I have to make mm-hmm. a physical, you know, a, a movement. Okay. You're going to lotion your belly now and you're going to be grateful for this body. And I, mm-hmm. man, it's hard. It it's is. Hard. It is. But it is possible or remains a possibility. And, you know, I've got five kids and two of them are girls. I have a 14 year old and a 20 year old, almost 20. And when I hear my 14 year old right now talk terribly about her young, beautiful body, I'm just like, damn it. They got <laughs> another generation. Like, yes. I'm so mad about it. Like, how dare they? We have got to break the cycle. Um, and, and they're not, the, we can't wait on the industry to break it for us. They, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. Who is, they are counting on us to hate ourselves. 
And so this is going to have to be our work um, to interrupt this trajectory and to just see to it that we don't pass this on to our daughters, um, that they grow up strong and grateful inside their bodies. Oh, I'm just... I'm so determined to work on this. I know my daughter's 11 and she was running through the house in her cute little crop top and booty shorts for CrossFit. And I thought, oh gosh, gorgeous, 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 mm-hmm. gorgeous, you know, and, and it has already hit her. I mean, the, the totally. cause she's got muscular legs and I'm like, oh, how do we, so how do we do it? And I know mm-hmm. we have to love ourselves. They have mm-hmm. to see us in bikinis and they have to see us yes. being free and, yes. And like, you know, just being naked and fine with it. And this is, my, yes. and I know it starts there, but what else, what else can we do? Totally. Um, it matters. So, they hear every word we say. Yeah. Um, they hear our own self-hatred and they just pick it up. Um, they see how we treat our bodies. They see what, how we withhold from our bodies, um, how we try to just shrink and ugh, all the stuff we do um, to make our container look like somebody else's. Um, even though it's not even meant to look like that, that's not even our body type. Um, so it matters so much what our daughters see us saying and doing, but it also matters what we tell them. You know, I, the fierce is really heavily researched. It's, it's not a memoir. It's, it's a, it's a book of it's tools and resources to be free in your own life. And so it comes with a lot of emotional, mental health research and data. And so when I read the the research on teen girls and realized that like 40% of girls by 13 hate their bodies and 75% of girls by 16 hate them, 75%. And they're already engaging in harmful practices, either eating disorders um, or um, self-harm or just like starving themselves. The numbers are so high and terrifying. And so we, we have to show a better way, but we have to tell a better way too. And so I tell my girls, I told them this whole she, her narrative. I'm like, this is your body. She will be responsible for carrying you through every moment for the rest of your life. You can count on her. I told my daughter, Sydney, she is team Sydney all the way. You are her only <laughs> protect. You, she is only in charge of you. You can trust her. You can love her. You can treat her well and let her be. And so that is a real, that, that's as much of a reversal for our girls as it is for us. No one's telling them that. Like they're picking up all the same messages in the air that we did. And so I think we have to really like lay the ax at the root of the tree here and teach our daughters different words, different language, different ways to be inside their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so good. So good. All right. Let's shift to critics. I love the part in your book. And if anyone has any questions, we're going to open it up to, for you guys to ask Jen questions. So start thinking of your questions. Um, I love the part in your book where where you talked about the King's daughters. (laughs) Oh dear. The worst. Um, the worst. And that's so funny. So I, I wrote an article uh, for Mother's Day called Mother's Day is Nonsense. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, clickbait, but it was talking about how Mother's Day is really hard for a lot of people. It's hard for yeah. women across the board and we should be more compassionate. Well, a lot of people yeah. just read the title and just decided to rip me a new one. Sure. And it of was all the king's daughters. And I yeah. laughed, I laughed, I laughed. Um, this is what so, she's talking about for those of you yeah. who are like, what are they meaning? Um, I was just telling, telling some stories about what it is like to be on the receiving end of online criticism 
which we all have. I mean, all of us have had our feeds turn into a dumpster fire, um, <laughs> either, you know, warranted or not. Everybody knows what that means. That's just part of being a social media user. Um, but I was just saying that being fairly public and having more than the average amount of eyes on everything I say, um, this feels concentrated for me, especially because I'm a challenger. This is why Ian thought I was an eight. Um, I'm a challenger and I challenge systems and I challenge the patriarchy and I challenge paradigms and I challenge power differentials. I can't help it. Um, and I've just noticed that when a, cr- and I'm not, I'm not um, by the way, I welcome disagreement. I welcome dialogue and conversation and kind of a push and pull. I think that's good for us. That does, I have no resistance to that at all. But I've noticed that when the, the, the comments come in and they are mean, you know, like mean spirited and name calling and really, really like highly dark and, um, meant to injure. (laughs) This is terrible. (laughs) You guys, I I can't believe I'm telling you this, but sometimes I go, I'll just do a quick, I don't do this often, but sometimes I'll click over to their bio and just get a little feel real quick in case. I'm misreading their comment. And I think there's room for like good faith dialogue here. Like maybe I've just missed the tone. Let me kind of see who this person is because there might be something here to work on together. Nine times out of 10, when I go to that person's bio, the super mean one, nine times out of 10 (laughs) and her bio, at least one little phrase is daughter of the king. Um, which is this like evangelical phrase that's like super popular. We're daughters of the king. And I'm like, so I talked about that in the book and I was like, look, the daughters of the king are the worst. They're, <laughs> They're the, the meanest. meanest. They're the they meanest. Were... <laughs> I, love the I just want to be like... with the king's kitchen staff. That's <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. That's yes, right. You said that something like crew. they were worse than the devil's hell. I laughed. Well, I, I laughed know. out loud. You out know, loud. I, I like to be hyperbolic. I'm such a melodramatic queen. But it's so, I mean, I don't want to say like, oh, it's so true. But it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. when you track back the hateful comments or the criticisms. Yeah. Like, I'm with you. Give me some constructive criticism sure. all day long. It makes me better. But when you're just ugly... Yeah. But I'll track it back too. And it's usually, you know, the, cause I grew, I grew up very conservative question. We were actually, my they'll deny it, but we were in a cult. <laughs> so ah, it was like serious. Um, and wow. so I know that um, mm. zealous, zealous, um, you know, righteous hate and that's scary hate that's scary yeah. hate sometimes but how do oh, you yeah. deal with it i mean i know you you took a lot what was it mm. four or five six years ago and yeah um it, it's just hard i mean i am still a baby to it and it still mm. impacts me i mean does it mm. does it still impact you yeah um no. but i've gotten better at it and um how many of you i'm just always curious like let's look at the girls in the room like how many of you um, that kind of that level of just like criticism or like uh, what feels like rejection does it just take you out like it'll absolutely take you out of the day yeah yeah I understand that deeply because um, looping back for a second I, as an Enneagram three part of what um, I'm afraid of in the world is not being loved And so criticism suggests to me exactly what Miss Anderson told me all along, like this deep fear of mine. I don't even know why anybody likes me, you know, like I am not likable. I'm not lovable. And so 
um, criticism, it, it hits a trigger button for me. So I understand what you're saying. Um, at this point, having received so very much of it, <laughs> like buckets, like, oceans of it. Um, I have learned that I don't have to be a prison to approval. And that for me, doing the right thing, um, standing at the right time, um, being an ally with the, with the right people, um, is what has turned out for me. It's, it's its own comfort and it's its own reward. And so I have been able to stand inside integrity. Um, even when the wind and the waves are coming at it, even when that's so outside the group norms of my subculture and say, here I stand. Um, this is my real conviction. Um, this is what is true. This is what is right and good. And come what may, that's enough. Like that sort of personal integrity is enough for me. Um, this is not to say that criticism doesn't still sting and even sometimes break my heart. As you know, the closer it is in to you, the worse it hurts. Um, you know, who cares about like, you know, Melanie from Cincinnati, you know, um, she doesn't know me. We're not in relationship, but the closer it gets in, that's when it gets really painful. But, um, but here's what I always tell women. It is possible to say something true. It is possible to stand up for who you are or what you want or believe or think or need. Um, and no one will die. Like it's a miracle. Mm. Nobody drops dead. Like you can do it. You have the right to do it. Um, you can take ownership of your own life, even if it causes somebody else to be uncomfortable. Somebody else's discomfort is not your life mantra. Like that's not enough. That's not a big enough vision for the lives of women is just to keep everybody comfortable. I know that's what we were told. I know that's what's expected of us. Um, but I'm just telling you, it's not enough. It's not enough for me and it's not enough for any of us. Yeah, that's such good. So, so good. So good. Um, there was a question, let's see, from Sarah. What do we do when the daughters of the king make us feel so small? Make us feel that our faith, our practice, and our words are wrong? It's a good yeah, question. It is a good question. And I'm, I appreciate you asking it. And I'm sorry that we have to talk about it. It's a bummer. I, I wish so deeply that faith communities in general were more charitable. I wish they were kinder. I wish they were more generous to one another. And I wish they were more interested in spiritual curiosity because the way it looks is that most of most faith communities value certainty and rightness and inness and outness. Um, and it can just be so devastating to find yourself on the other side of it. Um, and I know, like, I really know I'm, I'm speaking from experience. Um, and so I hope this doesn't sound trite and I don't want to minimize your pain because it is very real um, to experience rejection from the very community where you used to belong um, or you wanted to belong. Um, but you, to some degree, like we cannot control everything. We really can't. We, I wish we could. I've tried everything. We cannot control other people, but to some degree, we can control some of the communities we are a part of, and a faith community is one of them. Um, we are there. The, there's no lock on the gate. We can walk right out. 
Um, it is not a prison. It is a choice. And so when we find ourselves inside a faith community that is consistently making us feel small or ashamed um, for our spiritual curiosity um, or punished for the questions that we're asking or whatever, um, we can choose a different space. And I'm just telling you because I've discovered it. Um, I walked away from that place and it was a combination of walk away, kicked out. It was a real tricky needle <laughs> to thread. Um, and for a while, didn't know where I would go. I didn't know if I would recover. I didn't know where I would land. I didn't know who would have me. I had no idea what that was going to look like. Uh, but I can tell you now, several years down the road, that where I found myself is out here with this whole community of like ragamuffins. And it is so expansive and beautiful. There's so much safety built into it. There's so there's the possibility of, of, of asking questions and, and having dialogue where it doesn't break the whole system. Um, and listening to different ideas and different point of views without fear or without shame. I'm just saying, saying what you seek exists. Now, you may not have ever been a part of it, so you don't know that. Um, but I'm telling you that it does. And so when we can walk away from toxic, poisonous environment in whatever capacity that is, we should. We should. Mm. Life is short. This is it. This is like our one shot through it. Um, and so I, I commend your question and I commiserate with the way that that makes you feel. And I tell you that you are courageous enough um, to write a different story, even in your own life. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, another question, how do we protect our heart when we are trying to connect and make a friend? It's such a hard task. I have a great story with this. So go ahead. Um, back when I went to law school, which was like a hundred years ago, um, I was very introverted. I was very, very overweight. I had a severe drinking problem. So I thought mm. everyone hated me and the world was against me. So mm. as I was leaving to go to law school, I told my husband, I said, I'm really scared. And he said, just make a friend. He said, go there today and make a friend, one friend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I can go make a friend. And so during one of the breaks at orientation, I was standing on this ramp and there was a little girl with short black hair standing by the ramp. And I was like, friend, there's my friend. So, yeah. so I walked over to her and I was like, hi, I'm Meredith. And she's like, hi, I'm Beth. She's one of my best friends. That's and a she great said story. she remembered me standing on the ramp and she thought I was the tallest person she had ever met. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like way up on this ramp and she was little. And but it was so funny because that mm. I just went and said, Today I'm gonna make a friend, just one. Yeah. And it was the first shot. Now it's not always gonna be that way, but mm. I think being open to I'm going to make a friend, mm. it was so valuable for me. So now I mean <laughs> That's just it. And man, this chapter is touching a nerve with um, the readers of Fierce. There's a chapter called I Need More Connection. Mm -hmm. And boy, it has really pulled a bandaid off um, on how lonely a lot of women are and how much they are craving relationships, particularly with other women um, and connection that is safe and true where you get to be your, you get to be your real self inside of it. It's not like the fake you, but you get to show up the real you. Um, and so I think what I hear in the question is how can I create that? And then thus experience that sort of connection without being vulnerable. And I'm very sorry to tell you that you can't, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I wish I had a workaround. I wish that I could say to you, here's how you can do this in a way that will keep you both protected and open. Um, but those two things are in opposition to each other. Um, we can only be loved to the degree that we will let ourselves be known, right? And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that what it's going to require of you is a risk that you have to know that you have to know this. Well, I don't know the outcome here. This might work. It might not. Um, I might open myself up and be disappointed. Um, but what if you aren't? What if you aren't? What if you open yourself up and you meet your best friend while you're standing on a ramp, right? right. What if you open yourself up and you find a little community that absolutely saves your soul, right? Here's the interesting thing about connection. Like positive human relationships are the number one human need that we all share. Number one, every culture, every generation, every country, every community. And so that comforts me. And I hope it comforts you because everyone else wants this as much as you do. It's not like everyone else doesn't care or they're not interested in relationships. You're the only one. Everybody needs this literally to the core of their being. And so um, I suggest that the, the reward is worth the risk. Um, even if you start with one friend, and I like that you said that, I like that you said, you don't necessarily have to find this completely developed community that you just drop into. And now boom, you have a crew, you know, maybe it's one person and one person can meet that need that we have in our hearts. And so take a risk. You are a creator. You can create connection. You do not have to wait for it to miraculously land in your lap. Um, you are very powerful in this possibility. Um, and I hope that you consider that you can be the first domino that tips, not just wait for another one to fall down behind you, right? So I'm with you. We need this. It's important. Um, I value your question, but more than that, I value your energy toward getting it answered. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also knowing that showing up is kind of showing a corner of our true self. And that's what society and the world has been telling us to keep quiet and stay small. And so yeah. what courage it takes to show up and say, hey, I'm, yes. you know, I'm Meredith and I, I need a friend. Um, yeah. That That is so brave. And from working with women all these years, I know one thing to be so true. We have far more in common than we mm -hmm. don't. And the fears that we have, they're, they're all the same. They're all the same. And, totally. and so, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, Rebecca says, shameless plug for the Jen Hatmaker book club. I have met the most amazing friends there on Facebook. Seriously. Let's talk about your oh. book club. Oh my gosh. Here's what's so funny. Cause of the way I'm sitting at my desk right now, I think I'm missing like a couple, but like, this is our book club staff. I keep all my book clubs like in one <laughs> growing pile on my desk so I can keep remembering what we've read every month. Uh, this is just a place for lovers of books and lovers of reading, but as it turns out, lovers of women too. Um, when I, I've just been a lifelong reader. I thought I was going to be a librarian. Um, and so <laughs> books have always meant so much to me. And I've always wanted to have a book club that celebrates literature like across genres. But so I knew that I knew we were going to create an incredible book club. I knew we were going to read incredible books. I knew we'd have awesome dialogue around plot and characters and story storylines and all that. What I didn't expect was what happened inside the Jen Hatmaker book club community. Like that just took on a life of its own. We didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even try. Just all of a sudden, there were all these local chapters literally all around the United States that started getting together and loving each other and 
they're just so amazing. Like I, the stories that come out of the local chapters, I just shake my head at all the time. I'm like, that's what happened when women get together and they feel safe and loved. Um, mm. They can come together. And so it is just the greatest. Anyway, you guys should join us. If you love books, um, it comes, you know, you get a book box every single month with the book and the gift. And we have all this online stuff to go with it. And we have podcasts with the author every month. It's just fantastic. It's like, oh. you're worth it. You're like, you're, you deserve it. If you love books and reading and women, this is your home. This is your place. Very cool. Very cool. I love that. Um, anyone has any questions, you can raise your little blue Zoom hand and you can come on video. That's an, I'd say that this is a great opportunity to practice your public speaking, your presence and being good. Big, so I don't know um, what the blue so, Zoom hand means. Oh, so you can like somewhere, I think it's under participants, you can raise your hand and it, it says raise hand and then this little like blue <laughs> Zoom hand goes up. Um, yeah. Oh, magic. let's see. Why am I, I mean, you probably can't see it because I made you a oh, co-host. Someone raise your blue Zoom hand. So Jen, we're, we're teaching about coffee and blue Zoom hands today. So. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for teaching <laughs> me that important it. thing. Oh, very important. Um, one of the lines in your book I love is I finally clearly know who I am and how I was made, how I thrive and what I'm here for. I am finally the exact same on the outside as I am actually on the inside. Yeah. What does that's that's, that feel? What that's does that my feel thesis. Like? <laughs> that's my whole thesis. That's what the whole book is about. Um, I was tired of feeling fractured and I really was. Um, I noticed that in my life for years, um, I was this gin in this room, a, di- a little bit of a different version of gin in this room. Um, I tweaked it a little bit more for this one because I know what all the rewarded behaviors are and the punished behaviors. So I'm very adjustable. And, um, and that is not a sustainable way to live because the, the competing parts of what you're presenting eventually like oppose each other and you know it and eventually everybody else knows it. And it just, you feel like a fraud and you feel like a fracture, a fractured version of yourself. Cause you are like, that's literally the version of disintegrated. Mm-hmm. And so I just, dis- I finally decided I don't want to live like that anymore. I want full ownership. I want to be who I am all the time. I want one gin in every room. Um, let the chips fall where they may, but at least I'll be telling the truth. Like at least I'm free because when you're fractured, you are not free. Like you are constantly having to shape shift to fit what is expected and wanted of you um, in the community, in the place that you are, in the relationship that you're looking at. And so I, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I decided that I was going to be integrated, that I was, there was going to be one me and that was the me that lived everywhere. And there's a cost to that. I know that. I know that some women are hearing that like, nope, can't do that. You don't. If I said what was true in all the rooms, it would cause such turmoil or I'd have to step away from my job or this would deeply disrupt my marriage or I'd, I wouldn't be accepted in my faith community anymore. I know. Like, I know you're not wrong. Um, there is a cost when women decide um, to have agency over their own lives. Um, but here's the thing. When we don't choose that, there's also a cost. So lying and pretending and faking is not free. That is not right. free. We're paying it. So we're paying the price. So nobody else has to be disrupted. So I got to the point where it's like, am I going to pay the cost to be, in, to be fractured or am I going to pay the cost to be free? Which one? Either way, it's going to cost. And I chose freedom. 
And I will tell you that it is the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. And the way that I live now is a miracle because what I did not know it was going to do this, but it purged me of fear. Fear was the very thing that kept me from living like that. Fear was the thing that kept me from that work. But now having done it, having walked through it, having paid the appropriate costs, um, having sort of culled my life into something that is genuine now, I the only regret that I have is that I didn't do it sooner. And yeah. I just know that this is possible for every woman. I know that it is. And I know that we're strong enough to pay the cost. And I know that what awaits us on the other side is absolute beauty. It is joy. It is healthy relationships. It's connectedness. It is us stepping into our gifts and our talents. Um, it's going to turn us into the best version of ourselves uh, the, with the greatest wives and partners, great parents, incredible workers and um, servants. And it's just, a. this is the way to live. Like this is the way to live. And it's just my highest vision for women I've ever had. That's wonderful. Um, I'm four years sober and I didn't do the 12 steps and I've started mm -hmm. doing the 12 steps and also working through another program called Inner You with the Handel Group. And a lot, the main thing, the whole business behind both is truth and yes. coming to say where you've made mistakes yes. and where you're not going to do it going forward and how you're going to live with integrity going forward. And I thought, ah. I can't do this. I can't tell people my lies. Yeah. I can't ask for forgiveness for things they didn't even know I did. And it yeah. was this horrible weight on me until I hmm. did it. I had a four and a half yes. hour conversation with my parents on Saturday, wow. four and a half hours. And wow. we covered so much ground and told all my lies and truths. And they told some, and it wow. was so powerful. And I swear I lost like two pounds of guilt. Like I just oh, was like, Oh, I beautiful. can go run now and feel. And so I, I second yes. what you're saying that freedom is in the truth and it's in saying it what we mean and doing what we say and, and developing this personal integrity. And I'm, I'm so grateful for ah, it. And that. that was not my life 20 years ago. That was, of course. it was not my life. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for mm, you. Let's I do love a, that example. And let me just say to you, congratulations on four years of sobriety. That is monumental. Thank and you. The, I know the work that you had to do to get there and how much truth you had to embrace. And um, you should just, I hope you are so proud of that. Um, and I think that was the most wonderful example that you just gave that I, what we have to do is trust that truth is the path to freedom. Right. Even when it's hard, even yes. when the truth is a terrible, terrible thing to say out loud, um, when it's embarrassing, when it's humiliating, um, when it's crushing, even then it is still the path. That yes. is the path toward a free life. And so um, really proud of you Thank for you. grabbing onto sobriety with both hands and hanging on for four years. Well <laughs> Thank done. You. It, is, it is true that the truth is the anchor. And if you just make a decision, I'm going to live in the truth, yeah. then you know it's going to be hard, but you also know that whatever the consequence of that truth, that it'll be yeah. true. That's it. <laughs> and it, it's fine. It's That's fine. That's it. So lightning round. Oh, wait, we okay. have some questions. Never mind. Oh, lightning okay. round. Kimberly, I'm going to unmute you. Okay. Go ahead. So this is like my dream to have you both together. This is very <laughs> <laughs> So thank you. Um, so uh, I loved, I'd love, Jen, to give an example of, you talked about the cost of truth. 
Hmm. And I, I think that's probably what holds a lot of people back. Sure. They are worried about that cost. Is there like an example you could give where hmm. um, it, the truth did cost you something and sure. just the path forward um, was worth mm -hmm. it anyway? Mm -hmm. Sure. Here's an example. Um, I have been a leader in a faith space for 15 years. Um, and that's toward whom I wrote books and, and led and taught and spoke to. And, um, and that would have been encapsulated in sort of a um, conservative evangelical women space, which is a very specific subculture. Um, and let me just say this, if you're not a, pers a person who's like involved in a faith space, a lot, every subculture has its own group norms and they follow a lot of the same paths. You know, they have rules, spoken and unspoken. Um, they have ways in which we're supposed to have engagement with one another. So it, this, you could also consider this like your corporate environment, maybe your family. Um, it could be your geography. I, I have women write to me regularly and they say, I live in the deepest of deep South and I'm the only person I know going against the grain and I'm freaking out. Um, so it could be like where you live. We just know what our group norms are for me and my group norms. Um, it was, uh, the rules were very, very, very clear. There were sanctioned things that we said, thought, believed, wrote, stood by, stood against very clear. Um, and then the currency for that was belonging. Um, when you followed the rules, you got to belong. And when you stepped out of line, that's the first thing you forfeited. Again, that is how most subgroups work, unless they're incredibly charitable by nature. Um, that's how a lot of communities operate. And so um, I knew that I was already pushing really hard against the forms. Um, my, my justice heart was like screaming inside my body. So I was, I was this gin in this room, but behind the wall, I was freaking out. Like I was, I'm like, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I don't know. I don't agree with this. I feel like this needs an examination. I think, so I'm in there like just kicking up all sorts of dust. I'm talking about white supremacy, like all these just really lovely things that white people love to talk about. And I'm talking about women in leadership. I'm talking about women preachers. I'm just like, I don't believe all this stuff anymore. I don't believe the bounds. The, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when I deeply re-examined and changed my mind on um, what I landed at, which was full affirmation and inclusion of our LGBTQ like brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. That is the line. There it is. I found it. Um, mm. and so when that was a part of my public work, when I finally had the courage to have integrity there, cause I already felt that inside. I had already, I had it in my brain, I had it in my heart, I had it in my soul. I just didn't have it out of my mouth because I knew how much it would cost me. But when it came out of my mouth, that the whole thing dismantled. I like lost my, my books got pulled off of all the shelves. One of my books got put out of print. Um, it was just a, it, everything burned. It just went up in flames. Um, that was the last day that I was ever invited into that community. And, um, and that was really painful and I don't want to soft sell that. So for those of you who have a thing that you're thinking about, like, this is a thing I can't say out loud. I just can't do it. It's too disruptive. Um, um, what I'm saying is yes, you can, and you should, you can, and you should, and integrity will be your comfort and your reward. Eventually, if yep. you can hang on, 
If you can just decide this is worth it and I'm going to stand in this, I'm going to stand true inside of this space, um, every storm comes to an end. It does. And what you'll discover is that truth is an incredible tool because it either um, presses a relationship or a community or a, um, a career into reform and into health. It forces it. It puts true and real boundaries on it and forces it to improve, forces it to reimagine, forces it to um, behave differently with one another, or it, it discloses it as its time is up. This time mm-hmm. is over and this is not yeah. healthy and it won't be healthy. So if something can, if we apply truth to something and it crumbles, that thing was a lie. That thing wasn't true to begin with. So if truth, if truth can destroy it, it deserves to be destroyed. Preach. Um, and <laughs> <love> so <laughs> we add yes. truth into the hardest places, even our own, even like I'm a, I'm an addict, you know, or I'm having an affair or whatever the thing is, we apply truth to it. We see if truth can redeem it. Can it restore it? Can it make it stronger and better and wiser? And if it can't, that thing needs to go and you'll survive both. Either way, you come through on the other side with something beautiful and strong and healthy and good. It's just how it works. We just have to trust the process. Um, and so that for me, it, it, it ended up looking like a lot of loss for a long time. And then it looked like total gain, absolute gain. I mean, absolute joy, beauty, life, and love. I wouldn't change one second of one minute. That's beautiful. All right. We got one minute till you have to go. So um, I, do you have time for one more or are you going to sure. drop dead? Okay. Sure. All right, Rebecca. You got one minute. You're on. Unmuted. Hey, Jen. Um, so growing, I kind of come out of the evangelical Christian world where you were the darling. Um, yeah. You know, so I guess my question is, how would you, how would you define truth? Because like, we were told what it was uh-huh. before. Like, how would uh-huh. you define it? Yeah. I think it's what? a really big and a huge question. It was presented to me as a small question. Like, I always thought that was a really small space, very easily defined very simply encapsulated. Um, It was just handed to me. This is what it is. This is what we all believe. And by the way, we all, I now know was a small, it's a subset, right? Like that's not even true. Um, But that's all I knew at the time. And so um, I noticed, I've always had this very, I'm about to sound woo-woo everybody. So just relax. But I've always had this really, strong and sincere relationship with what I would say is Holy Spirit. Like I'm a person of the spirit that is always um, been the way that I operate in the world. And that, so when I started noticing that spiritually um, what my brain had heard in a lot of ways is just, this is true, 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 true. And only good people believe this and bad people don't um, had such a break with my heart had such a break with what I was seeing with what I was experiencing with the lived experiences of other people at the end of that doctrine or at the end of that theology. And it was actually breaking their hearts, breaking their bodies, breaking their families, um, causing pain and loss and destruction. And so I gave myself permission to explore that and say, if what I was presented as absolute truth is causing absolute death and harm, maybe 
it should be reevaluated. But we are not tra- we're not taught to trust that instinct. Um, we are taught to trust the authorities, which are always the same people, you guys. Like the same authorities are keeping all the status quo in all the places. Um, and so it's always been these um, kind of rebellious truth seekers who tear down unjust systems. Always. Like we love them in hindsight. I mean, we love us, some revolutionaries in hindsight, but they're actually hated in their cultures. They're actually hated in their generations. Um, And so um, I have learned to trust um, that truth will produce joy, love, hope, and health eventually. Like if truth works, it's, if truth is allowed to work freely. That is what you get on the other side. So when we see the opposite, something's not true. Something's not true about it. Um, And so that's a real wide and a vague answer to your question. But I have just discovered that that permission to walk through truth like that in this holy spiritual space um, has reintegrated my life and um, given me back a lot of joy and meaning in places where it was absolutely robbed and stripped of it all. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really great. does. But yeah, so you're basically trusting that kind of thing that you feel deep inside. I just trust and, that God is good. I trust uh, that he is good, and I trust that Jesus is good news like he said he was, and I believe all that. Like, I've, I've built a whole life on that. And so I believe that, that I believe that God is love and love alone. I do. And so um, when we, I don't think it's God in error. I think it's humans. I think it's our understanding that's an error. And so, um, so if, if we are applying a deep seated love to humanity, then I, I think we're going to see the results that make sense. The same ones that we read, like in the Bible, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what we're going to see. That's the result. That's the result. And so when we see the opposite, for me, it's just a real quick red flag. Like, whoop, something's broken in the system. Broken in the system, needs evaluation. <laughs> and I'm no longer afraid to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Jen, I know that I speak for everyone. Thank you so much for doing this today for my community. And I'm going to unmute everyone right now. It's going to be really loud. So everyone can say goodbye to Jen and I will post the recording. And yes, so here we go. Everyone say bye. Bye. Bye, Jen. To you. To share my morning with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So cute. (laughs) Have a great day, Jen. Thank you. Love you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.